you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, the unquenchable fire, and the wheat and the chaff are separated and you will burn. And with exhortations like that, John preached good news to the people. <laughs> well, really, I mean, it's, next time I'm going to look at the lectionary before I sign the preacher for this. <laughs> the people hearing this wanted to know what they should do. And John told them to share their coats with debtors, those who had their clothes taken from them by day, by the courts, and to share without regard to culpability in a world where power had gone amok. And he told, he told them to debt collectors to take more than, no more than is prescribed. And it's greed that creates the poor and keeps them in their poverty while the rich get richer. And he told the soldiers and the men with power do not extort or lie or bully. And the people began to wonder whether John might be the Messiah because the fruits of that repentance for which he called would be justice and would be hope. And so with many other exhortations, he proclaimed good news to the people. Well, let's face it, it's not good news to all the people, at least not initially. John is proclaiming a mighty act of God that will bring justice to those who deserve justice and punishment to those who deserve punishment. It's not good news for those who run the system, who make the laws about debtors, who govern the armies or the terrorist cells or the arms trade. He's threatening their livelihood. He's threatening their position in society, their wealth. There might be a philosopher or two among them who get that fundamental reform needs to include the poor when they're balancing the special interests, all of whom are looking for a just and more secure world for everyone. But on the whole, John is just an annoying threat to the status quo. And as he whips up the messianic fantasies of the people, he becomes more of a problem. And eventually, of course, the powerful will put him to death. They will get him out of the way. They will squash him like the bugs that he eats. You are what you eat, after all. And then along comes Jesus. And he, too, speaks in this prophetic voice that, that, that people expect of prophets, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and is raising up the plight of the poor and his calls to civil disobedience in the face of unjust laws about debtors and the bullying of soldiers. And of course, eventually, they will put Jesus to death as well. But there was something different about Jesus' actions as a prophet. Like the prophets of old, he spoke truth to power, but with no privileged access. He, he had not an advisor to kings and emperors. He was a rabbi who taught in their synagogues. But what really made him different was that even while he was using the traditional forms, and everybody knew what that meant, and that meant God was about to act for justice, and those who would cast down would be raised up, and those who were abusing power would be shown for what they were, even as Jesus was saying that message, he was radically changing their imaginative horizons, the boundaries and the fundamental assumptions and expectations of the world as it was then known. I, I recently have read um, a novel, a historical novel, that won the Man Booker Prize. Some of you will have read it. It's called Wolf Hall by uh, Hilary Mantel, and it's set during the early 
English Reformation and the main issue of the book is how Henry VIII can extricate himself from his 20-year marriage to Catherine of Aragon so that he can get on with uh, Anne Boleyn and on and on and on. And the book sent me back to reading the history and I've got Cranmer going and histories by my bed, which I may not get to. But what grabbed me about the novel, uh, among the things that grabbed me about the novel, was I came to realize that everybody involved in this time in history, whether they were for Henry or against him, whether they were working to help him or working to harm him, they all assumed that what he needed was a male heir, a son born of a woman to whom he was legally married. And whether they wanted that to happen or not to happen for their various reasons, they all assumed that things would get really bad if that didn't happen. And it's only, what, 20 years later that there's a woman on the throne, that that imaginative boundary that they had was broken. The unthinkable, the unthink why not put a woman on the front? Oh, I can't have that. The unthinkable had happened. That imaginative boundary was broken and the world was changed. Now Jesus, Jesus did this kind of thing uh, a fair amount himself. He was gonna break a number of those barriers. He, he did take one example, take the temple. The temple was the sign of God's presence in the midst of the people. It was where the sacrifices happened. It was a, uh, an institution that spoke of God's presence and concern for Israel. And Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll build it in three days. It was an issue at his trial. He said, in effect, you have turned what was a gracious gift, a gracious instrument of God into an instrument of power and control and coercion. And what you need to do from now on is look to right relationship with God, right relationship with me, right relationship with one another, apart from that symbol. The temple is not everything it's cracked up to be. And he did the same thing with the law. This gracious gift of identity became a, a tool of power and oppression for many. And he did the same thing with the promised land and the story of the Seder. said, so from now on, what you look for in that promise, you see in relation with me. It's a, it's a massive breaking of the, or reshaping of the imaginative boundaries that underlay so much of Israel. I can imagine Jesus coming to Saudi Arabia or to the 14th Street Majid up here and saying something similar about the niqab or the burqa and these coverings for women can be seen and often are seen by those who wear them as a gracious and liberating gift. But at what point do they become instruments of power and oppression? It's not my business. I don't have to sort it out. But I can imagine Jesus saying, there's something going on here that needs to be shifted. What's harder for me is to imagine what bedrock assumptions Jesus would challenge in us that would shake up our world, that would open up possibilities. This is sometimes called Stir Up Sunday from our collect Stir Up, O Lord. And historically, it was the day when people mixed up the Christmas pud for the following year, and they stirred things up. And, but what would stir us up? What, what would it be? And it could be some assumptions we make about prophecy. See, when we hear John the Baptist, we don't hear good news. But in the world of John's time, that common parlance would have been heard by most 
as good news. God is about to act decisively and put things to rights. So what if we've got all sorts of assumptions about prophets? We think prophets are meant to sound like that. They're meant to be blaming. They're meant to be vituperative. They're meant to be asking for repentance. Uh, I was brought up on the idea that if you ever invite a prophet to dinner, you do not make the mistake of having them a second time. (laughs) Prophets are not good company, necessarily. I mean, these are my assumptions about prophets. They're they're uh, They're not easy. They're not normal, let's face it. Um... But what if that's not quite right for our day and age? What if we think about it this way? The the preaching of John was classical good news. God was going to act decisively and bring about salvation, and salvation meant justice, and the poor were going to be recognized, and the powerful were going to be punished. And Jesus was to fulfill that prophecy, but not in any expected way. And Instead, he unmasked or revealed how just about everybody, poor and rich alike, collude in acts of violence, not about culpability, not about blame, but collude in acts of violence to keep the status quo in place in one way or another. And Jesus changed the conversation, and he unmasked all of those times when we find ourselves over against another, the over-againstness that governs so many of our relationships. I know who I am in part because I know I'm not you, or I know that we're okay because we're not as those others are. It's, It's a way of... He shows it for what it is, power and control over against the full claiming and appreciation of the love of God. And Jesus unmasked those realities by loving the full humanity with all those he came in contact, including the scribes and Pharisees. He was in relation with them. He honored them. He took them seriously. And he didn't try and manipulate them or blame them or coddle them or any other thing he might have done. He refused to endorse or participate or in any other way collude with the powers that would put him to death. That's what his silence was about, I think, at his various trials and his refusal to defend himself. But he would not turn anyone else into an object, an object for his needs. True prophetic proclamation for us and for our time will therefore have the tenor of invitation. It won't be coercion. Jesus has changed things. The kind of proclamation that is needed today is a different voice in the world, one that isn't angry and isn't blaming and isn't filled with ad hominem attacks. When we seek relationship from those who differ from us, as everyone does in some way, we will do it because the relationship itself is valuable and not because we're trying to get someone to do something. Uh, Let's go out and evangelize so we can get more people to church. That will really help your relationships because those people are going to feel objectified and they're not going to want to touch it with a 10-foot barge pole. And they'd be right. We enter into relationship, and it's a prophetic and refreshing thing to be in relation with someone simply because they're interesting and it matters. And we share our story and we don't objectify or manipulate or blame or do any of those other things that we tend to see so much of in this world. We're surrounded every day being told, buy this, do that, you deserve it. People getting us to do things that we don't think we want to do. Well, how refreshing is it if when we have a need, we simply in a straightforward way say, would you do this for me? And the people are afraid to say no or yes, but they're probably going to think, huh, What's his angle? Nobody's that straightforward. You see how we can start communicating in a different way 
because we've been freed, because we don't have to continually worry about who we are in relation to the other and whether someone's getting it over us. We can, in fact, start to choose to act differently in our conversation. Discourse can be civil. We don't have to put each other down to feel better about ourselves. And, and we all are working toward some kind of vision of civil straightforwardness. And wouldn't that be a mark of prophecy today? Wouldn't that be a way of changing and shaping and shaking things up if we could be fully confident, non-anxious, non-coercive, inviting, and, and really available and accessible to the people with whom we come in contact. So just as John told the people to do justice, so we can make a beginning of repentance in preparation for celebrating the mighty act of God in Jesus by becoming conscious of how much our conversation and communication does not proclaim good news. And we can recognize how often we perpetuate tiny acts of violence and we can recognize how much of our talk about others seeks to build us up at their expense, whoever they are. And we can resolve we're not going to do that anymore. We don't have to. We can be confident about who we are and the story we have to tell and without blaming and without getting all bound up and reactive. We're not going to participate because we've been freed from that by the mighty act of God in Jesus I could think of many other exhortations by which we could proclaim good news to the people in the prophetic tradition, but none more important than making sure our proclamation is inviting, non-anxious, non-coercive, and does not serve to make the other an object of our own desires. That would be a prophetic gift in the tradition of John the Baptist, a gift for the world this Christmas. Let us respond to the gospel in silence and in prayer.